Welcome to Season 2, Episode 44 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Adrian Howe. Adrienne is a writer. Her debut novel, Hydra, is out now through Transit Lounge Press. Welcome to the show, Adrienne. Thank you for having me, Ben. How's life in rainy, shitty, cold <laughs> Melbourne? It's funny. We were actually just um, shitting on the city um, when <laughs> we weren't recording. And now that we are recording, I'm like, no, I love this city. I don't want to say anything bad about it. Um, <laughs> but, no, what were we talking about? We were talking about um, how... Uh, potentially it's lost just a little bit of its spark um, of late. Um, Of course, there's always that COVID hangover. Um, But I just, and I think it also just might be me personally as well at the moment. It's not the city's fault. It's my fault. I'm just not so inspired by what has traditionally been a city that I've really enjoyed living in. Um, And it's, yeah. (laughs) It has lost a bit of its spark, I think, the last little bit. I think that yeah. COVID, COVID just kind of killed a lot of that magic off yeah. about Melbourne. Yeah. And I think I've found anyway that I feel like that the, the things that attract me to Melbourne are also the things that kind of make it um, a bit of an ephemer- ephemeral city. Like it doesn't mm. relate to its place yeah. in time. It kind of relates to the things that uh, are things like art and things like culture that yeah. really could be anywhere. And I think that when they're not here, like over COVID, I think it makes the place not as exciting. Yeah, absolutely. When you can't get your coffee, when you can't go to the gallery, um, see a film, all of those things. So, yeah. Yeah. And it is one of those places where I work, walk through like strips of shops now and I feel like there's just lots of empty shops. And yeah. There is actually. And there's lots of signs saying, you know, for lease. Um, I've noticed that a lot too, yeah. I took my kids into the city recently Mm. down to the Docklands where they have a large Ferris wheel, Mm. which has strangely been, um, yeah, oh, the Ferris wheel is a joke, but the Ferris wheel is being closed down for numerous periods, but I think now it's finally closed down, maybe forever. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) I I was kind of fantasising about the fact that it would just, like, roll through town, like, as an art. Yeah, just down Burke Street or something. (laughs) We'll get to that. That'll be that'll be like a roving art piece. That will get yeah. Melbourne back on track. Absolutely. <laughs> what are some of the best things about growing up in Melbourne? Growing up in Melbourne. Um, so I grew up in South Sierra and I was very fortunate to have, um, you know, be near Faulkner Park and the Botanic Gardens. It was very much a green, uh, green space um, and... The architecture of South Yarra I really love. You know, you have your um, Victorian terraces, um, but you also have these pockets of Art Deco, which I just find uh, so beautiful and magic. And there's this um, there's this section of Art Deco down near, uh, just off the Yarra, um, around the Beverly Hills apartments. I don't know if you know it. It's um, it was built by an architect called Henry Lawson. And he um, built all these, yeah, these Art Deco apartments from the, uh, there was a, a recession um, in, uh, and all these mansions in Turak were getting bulldozed. And he went there and he took 
um, you know, a lot of doors and a lot of windows, um, real structural elements. And he brought them to South Yarra, put them in these apartments. And there's this grotto pool there. And as a kid, I used to um, like sneak in there and uh, play on the stairs with all the ivy everywhere. And uh, it, it's a really haunting, beautiful place. So I think when I think of growing up in South Yarra, it's definitely exploring the streets. Yeah, I think it formed um, a lot of what I considered to be beautiful in a way. Speaking of that, <laughs> oh, yeah. No, speaking of that, I feel like that that informs quite a bit of Hydra, like especially the initial parts of it. Yeah. So that's yeah. really interesting. Mm, yes. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about, I guess, your background academically and stuff like that and how you got into writing? Yeah, um, let's see. So I, I was doing, um, I did my undergraduate um, degree in film and I thought I wanted to continue with that. I started, um, I, when I think about getting how I got into writing, it's very much for me. A return to reading because I think when I was you know a late teen early 20s I kind of just stopped reading um for whatever reason that was you know teenagers um lived more I had to just be more in the world I guess than in my head at that stage and so I was studying film and I was really loving that but then I had the opportunity to do a, a course at Melbourne Uni and I, I had done my undergrad at Monash and part of that in France. And I really, I'd always wanted to go to Melbourne. So I had this, uh, Melbourne University, I had this opportunity uh, to go there and um, study writing. And at first I thought it was going to be, um, I'd focus more towards script writing but then when I started reading again um, and reading um, for the curriculum, I just, I discovered the joy of it. And by the end of that semester, I thought, shit, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. I, I just fell in love with reading again. Yeah. And I ended up um, doing a master's in creative writing um, there. And I did my thesis. What was my thesis? It was... Um, Depravity is Art, a Grotesque Motive in Nabokov's Lolita and Suskin's Perfume. So I think that's, yeah, that's a bit of my, how I got back into writing anyway, or into reading, I guess, which segued into writing. I kind of want to hear a bit more about your thesis because those are two books I just love. Yeah. Can I remember it? That's the question. <laughs> um, it was, oh God, it was nearly... It was in 2013 that I finished that thesis. Um, and I think basically, well, I, guess I was looking at the two books separately to begin with. Um, Humber, I was looking at Lolita um, from how the reader is involved in the crime somewhat because the writing is just so beautiful and really it's not a book about it, it, it's a book about writing and it's a book about the beauty of writing um, and the power of language and seduction of language and how then the reader becomes complicit 
in this seduction, both of themselves, because they're so willing to give themselves over to Humbert Humbert, um, but also in his, um, you know, what he does to this 14-year-old Lolita. It's a very physical book. Like he, um, it's a, a great line. I'm, I can't remember it exactly, but he's like Lolita and the way he spells it out and he actually gets you to the reader to kind of use their mouth like they the reader doesn't just do it and read doesn't just read the words in their head they actually articulate them aloud when they lowly turn you can feel it on your tongue and you can feel it in your I thought that was really cool mm. um so yeah and then so I think that's what that was talking about. Um, and what did I say in perfume? God, I can't remember so long ago. I, I think it was effectively the same. Basically, it was looking at um, art and how depraved art is used as a literary device. Um, I think that was the crux of the thesis from memory. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Wow. Okay. So we move on to Hydra. Your protagonist is Anya, and at the beginning of the book, she's just returned from a disastrous trip to the Greek islands. She returns to her job as an antiques dealer in Melbourne, and we meet her on her first day back at work. She attends a deceased estate, pushes an old lady out of a chair, a mid-century armchair, uh, and the action of the novel begins from there. Can you tell us a bit more about Anya and the setup of the book? Yes. Um, well, as Anya would say, she didn't technically push the woman off of the chair the chair just wasn't there when the woman went to sit back down (laughs) (laughs) um and I think that's uh, perhaps that's a a good um yeah analogy for Anya is that she always um sees uh, there's always kind of a a rationale for why she thinks she does what she or why she does what she does she she thinks she can kind of argue her way around it um you know did she push the woman off did she just simply pick up a chair that no one was sitting in yeah it's up for debate and it's up for the reader to kind of come to their own conclusion I hope anyway um on that as well well I guess look actually the book doesn't just open on Anya it opens on the prelude um and there are three narratives that uh are intertwined throughout the book um Anya's narrative though is the primary narrative uh, the primary storyline um and so first there's the prelude um which is one small storyline then it opens on Anya and it's her first day back at work after um a, a holiday um on Hydra or in, on the Greek islands where she where you find out soon enough but you don't know why um her marriage has come to an end and she comes back to work and she finds that potentially her job is under threat by her nemesis, Fran. And when she realises that, she realises that she has to do whatever it will take for her to, to become the specialist that she, she wants to be. Um, and that leads to the chair disaster because she sees it as her only way um, to secure this, uh, this prized with this, I guess, this world of antiques and people who go into homes of deceased estates and try to find, you know, really, uh, I guess, treasures and then sell them at auction, how did you, guess, I guess, become fascinated with that world? Yeah. Um, 
I remember my parents um, both collect antiques. They're not together, but um, I remember as a kid uh, spending, you know, time on uh, High Street Armadale where there, there are a lot of antique stores, and especially uh, there's a an antique dealer called Graham Geddes and um, it's the name of the store. It's also the name of the um, the dealer. I don't know. He might, I think his family have taken over now, but his... Um, he had this huge warehouse and it was just almost I think it went over a couple of um there were a couple of warehouses in a row and it just it was like a labyrinth and um I just I guess you know it might even like you mentioned the parallels with what I was just talking about the Beverly Hills um apartments um I just loved exploring it I was just fascinated by it and so I've always been attracted to antiques in a way because I they just came to I was always curious with what they represented what they embodied and and you know their history um a couple of the things that Anya talks about she you know she likes to imagine um what does she say you know um the bodies that lounged here or um you know made promises of love there I was always interested in the stories of these pieces outside of you know who just owns them in the present yeah so I think that's that's how I became fascinated by antiques I think and then uh, there's a there's a famous auction house here in Melbourne um, which I very loosely based um, Jeffrey Brown auction house on Mm. okay which can you say which auction house it yeah, was? Look, I don't think I can not yeah, I can say it. It's um Leonard Joel auction house. Yeah, that's exactly um, what I thought. Because yeah. it's like set in the yeah. old like school there, just on yes, yeah. the commission houses. Absolutely, that's the one. And there, you know, yeah. I've I've spent a lot of time on um uh they have a Thursday auction. So I spend a lot of time looking through their catalogue of what they've got available. And then they do these specialty auctions, um, one of which is mid-century. They do a mid-century auction every couple of months. Um, but in lockdown, they definitely moved to that online bidding. So that was, uh, I mean, that was a good way to um, spend some time during lockdown and um, spend some money, I guess, as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Getting back to the plot, so following the events in Melbourne after the chair incident, Anya retreats to the Mornington Peninsula. She finds Mm. a derelict rental property on naval land and she begins living there Mm. and strange things begin to happen. But without giving too much away, do you want to tell us about Anya's experience moving down to the Mornington Peninsula and a bit of her life there? Mm. So it's actually not described as I don't call it the Mornington Peninsula as such in the book, but it is absolutely influenced by the Mornington Peninsula um, where Anya finds herself is kind of this, I'd say it's a fictional location, but in my head, it's in between summers and HMAS Cerberus, um, which um, the naval base in the book um, is named HMAS Hydra. So one is the three-headed dog, the other is the three-headed serpent. Um, so Anya finds herself on a, uh, she purchases a land that has been cut from the Naval Reserve and uh, the purchase is for a 100-year lease. And on the land is a derelict 
building um, that for some reason has been uh, heritage listed, so she can't knock it down. Uh, and it's it's her on this isolated property. It, it's beach. Uh, it's it faces the ocean, but the beach she can't actually go down because it's part of the uh, the navy uh, reserve or the navy belongs to the um, the government, the land um, out of the water. So she can only look at it. She's um, quite tantalizing, but she can't touch it. And she's surrounded by marshland or wetlands, which belongs to the base as well. She experiences some strange things happening, like mm. shit on her do- doorstep and other things. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those experiences uh, when she moves there? Yeah. So on a after she's acquainted herself with the place, unpacked the boxes, walked the perimeter, gotten to know what is now her her land, she settles down for um, you know a glass of wine out front. And as you said, um, when she returns to her porch, she smells and then sees feces, and that becomes a question of well, whose is it? Um, and I guess what I was trying to do and what I hope is that the reader is constantly questioning what they think is happening more than just a mystery as to whose shit it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's um, I wanted uh, that reader's reality to kind of be in question. So I wanted them to, look at what's you know Anya's world how is that kind of being disrupted in a sense I think part of the really interesting thing in this novel is the fact that we kind of go from being a I guess day-to-day domestic drama Mm. to going to somewhere that's kind of got this gothic thriller element Mm -hmm. and we do start to question whether Anya's a little bit crazy because we know she's quite eccentric um but whether she's kind of lost it a little bit or what's happening because we do go down this route where we're not sure if something supernatural is happening or something other is happening. Mm. And I find that really interesting. But I want to ask you about, I guess, in terms of that aspect of the supernatural or the gothic element, how is that putting that into your book? I know whether or not Anya's fears are grounded in a reality. Yeah. But what is, you know, but I've intentionally left this truth um, ambiguous. Mm. Um, right. So to me, I wanted to, um, in the prelude, um, I mentioned the trusted universal order and um, how that's disrupted. So I wanted the reader to question that universal order. Mm. You know, is, is there something? In, that's happening to this narrative fabric, kind of, if that's what okay. you mean. Yeah, no, I think so. Well. Okay. It, it's not for me to suggest where the reader should place, whether or not they should place their faith in Anya. Rather, it's more of whether they themselves doubt the narrative fabric. So it's less, I guess, to do with Anya's psychology, even though I did that definitely absolutely played a part, but more to do with the world around her crumbling and 
the narrative threads loosening. Does that, that answer the question? Absolutely. That's a really good answer, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those people unfamiliar with the area that the novel's set in. We were discussing this before we started recording. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give us a bit of a description about this area where the novel is set and what made you want to set a novel in this particular area? I'd spent a lot of time um, on the peninsula, Moynton Peninsula growing up. Um, and it, to me, it had always had this um, haunting landscape. It, it was both eerie in its natural, like the trees, the mooner trees that bent over and twisted and the ocean can be, or the sea can be a bit, um, uh, you know, it's not a clear sea generally. It, it's wild down there. Then you also have this, a lot of industrial uh, aspects of the landscape. There's a refinery down there. Um, there's the HMAS uh, Cerberus. There's an abandoned, what are you about? There's an abandoned um, submarine. Submarine, that's it. Yeah. yeah, there's an abandoned submarine. So there are all these things that kind of um, are speckled across the, the coastline there um, that speak of people, but also of their abandonment kind of, because they're not like, I don't think that refinery is in use anymore. There are a lot of buildings there from, there are a couple of mid-century buildings as well. From, I think it was a BP building maybe or a Shell this gorgeous old building that's just, you know, not in use. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting landscape. Um, and that's, you know, one side of the peninsula. And then, of course, you've got the other side of the peninsula, which is the vineyards and the restaurants. And um, it's uh, more of a holiday destination. You've got your Port and your Sorrento. Um, so it's, there's a lot going on on the one peninsula. Um, a lot of different demographics, a lot of different landscapes. And yeah. Hmm. It is a really fascinating place. And I think like even going back into Australian history, you have things like the barracks down there and the quarantine right, down there yes, yes. and Harold Holt's uh, mm -hmm. place where he went missing, which is not too far away from the, where the novel set. So mm, mm. yeah, the, it's yeah, a rich landscape for story. Mm, definitely. I wanted to ask you about Transit Lounge because, first of all, I think their books are really great at the moment. Their covers are great and Barry seems to be doing a great job over there. How's your experience been working with them? Yeah, no, it's been it's been fantastic. Um, I've been, I'm so grateful that um, Barry picked up Hydra um, and that Hydra wears the, the Transit Lounge logo. It feels so right. Um, he uh, he produces some fine, they produce some fine, um, some fine titles. Um, so I've been, yeah, really happy with my experience with Transit Lounge. Um, and it's felt really collaborative as well. Um, yeah, especially when it came to doing the cover and yeah, as you said, he's the, some of the covers there at the moment are just absolutely gorgeous. Moon Sugar is coming out in October, um, by Angela Meyer. Um, and that's absolutely gorgeous, that cover. And oh, Signal Line as well. That's really cool. Um, the yellow and the black and the, the kind of ghost train mm. lines. 
So, yeah, no, um, Barry has been incredibly supportive um, and uh, he got the book um, from the get-go. So, yeah, well, there, I don't think there's much more I could want from a, a publisher. I also have to ask you on that is Martin Shaw, because he's been involved as well, hasn't he? Yes, yeah, he's my agent. He's a brilliant agent. Um, and he, uh, yeah, he was just a champion of this book from the get-go. And, you know, he's the, he's the agent that uh, every literary writer wants. Um, so, yeah, I'm incredibly lucky to be part of what he would call his stable of writers. Well, it's an increasing stable, I think, and he does seem to find some amazing writers out there and I think he's mm. really doing a great job. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, um, yeah, I've, he forced me to join Twitter and uh, I'm so glad that I did. It's just a, uh, it's such a supportive group, um, the people that he, um, you know, talks to with that and, yeah, everyone in that kind of little universe has been yeah very supportive and nice to get to know and everything yeah yeah it is a really nice little community I think that sharing sharing books and sharing recommendations and Mm. those kind of things have been yeah pretty amazing Mm. I'll ask you what you are working on at the moment yeah so I think I am a little superstitious when it comes to this because um when I was writing Hydra um, only a couple of people knew, you know, my partner knew I was writing. Um, uh, my colleagues at Writers Victoria knew I was writing um, a book, but no one outside of that, you know, my friends um, didn't really know, I didn't really speak about it, you know, there's so many parties that you'd go to and people were like, oh, yes, I'm writing a book. And um, anyway, I just didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it with anyone. So I guess I am a little superstitious, but um, about this next one that I am writing, um, I've only got, I haven't got many words. I think I've got about 10,000 words. Um, but uh, I don't know myself so much where it's going. Um, there will be a hotel, I'll say that. <laughs> well, one clue for me anyway, might be the fact that you wrote some of this book while you're in Vietnam recently. Um, Is that a possible clue to this book you're working on? Look, the the book's not set in Vietnam or anything like that. Um, But I was, I I did stay at, um, I stayed in Da Nang, Hue and Hoi An and different um, types of um, hotel accommodation each time. so I was definitely paying attention uh, to the workings of the hotels. Um, but in saying that, I was um, I worked in a hotel myself for years uh, when I was doing my undergraduate. But yeah, my undergrad, my master. I think it was actually when I was doing my master's. Sorry, I worked in a boutique hotel um, in South Yarra, and there are some very good stories that came from that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are you ready to talk about your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the doors of literature for you? Ah, uh, yes. Where are they? Okay. Oh, yes. So um, I've got firstly uh, R.L. Stein's Goosebumps, and I know that a few of your writers have said this on your podcast, um, 
that I think there's, I was thinking about why is it, um, why so many people attracted the goose to goosebumps and it's um and of course it's you know it's those macabre stories that uh, children just love um but I think there's something and this goes back to Anya and um collection and antiques and curation I think there's something in the goosebumps books um that uh, you know, kids just, they try to collect them. Every cover is a different iteration of, um, you know, it's the, sa- it's the same font with that bumpy goosebumps. Um, and they look the same, but they're all slightly different. And it, it was from, I'm trying to, I think it could be my first experience with collecting. Um, yeah, so that the Goosebumps R.L. Stein books are definitely um my first gateway books um and then also um while still a child I was um I really love the Narnia series um especially uh the first one which was the magician's nephew I've read that a lot oh so um I mentioned before how right how getting into writing was very much a coming back to reading for me and um it one of the books that struck me at that time was The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Um, and it just spoke to me. And when I put it down, I I just knew I wanted to try and, you know, be a writer. Um, I think it was the philosophical component of that book. Um, it's analysis of eternal return and freedom and love and sex. And uh, I was just... Um, yeah, that was that was definitely a book for me that, um, yeah, was a gateway book. Um, and then I, we've just had the conversation about uh, Lolita, Nabokov's Lolita, um, which I wrote my thesis on. When it came to writing Hydra, um, there's a effectively it's like a how-to manual um, on writing uh, by DBC Pierre and it's called Release the Bats um, and I took it everywhere with me um, and it's uh, it's it def- oh it separates um, the writing it separates writing very much into for lack of a better word um, art and craft um, and it speaks to both of those components equally well and I'd found that going through the university system and having read a lot of other writing manuals, um, they really struggled to articulate the how-to of the artistic creation. They're all very good for speaking about the craft, um, but they couldn't really capture that ethereal, spiritual um, element that is needed, in my opinion, to write fiction. and release the bats um, really address that in a way that didn't take any mystery out of writing and you know the um, didn't diminish that um, uh, that like that spiritual element in some sense but um, uh, spoke about how to get into those moods 
um, how to channel certain uh, energies um, without being like really wacky and hocus pocusy or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so that book, um, and I, I'm going to read it again soon and to get into it for the second book that I'm writing now. Um, that was absolutely, uh, in a sense, a gateway book for me. Brilliant. Okay. Yes, I like DBCPA, so I will have to read that at some point. Yeah, that's great. Cool. What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to? Oh, yes. So, uh, yeah, so when I was in Vietnam, I picked up two books. Um, the first is The Sorrow of War by, by Bao Nin. Um, and I picked it up in Hoi An in this um, uh, little antique shop, but they also sold um, English-speaking uh, books or books in translation. Um, and I love the book so much that it's actually the book itself physically, it, it stinks of mold. Um, so every time I opened it, I'd, oh, I'd just feel a bit sick, but I liked it so much that I had to keep going. I think that's um, a good indication of a good book is if it, you know, makes you feel sick, but you just can't put it down. Um, and that, that book is based on the experiences um, of the author, but it's told through a character. Um, uh, and that character is writing about his experiences as a North Vietnamese soldier um, and his life afterwards um, and dealing with what now would be classified as PTSD. Um, and it's very much about uh, lost youth because he gave all of his youth to um, the war and the aftermath of the war, um, the love that he lost um, and then whilst was able to physically return to, was never able to mentally, um, yeah, well, no, they were never able to reconnect um, like they had when they, before the war broke out. Um, and, yeah, just about the senselessness of war. And it's about writing and writing as a way for him to understand all that he'd experienced. So, and I like that it had the double layer. So you know that the writers, the like Bao Nin, the author, um, is writing through this character, but what is ultimately um, a story very much influenced by his own experiences. Mm. Um, yeah, so I found that book fantastic. And um, the second one was uh, Rue by Kim Twi, I think you pronounce it, um, and that's told through vignettes. Um, and it's influenced, again, by the author's experience. Um, she grew up in a wealthy family in pre-war Saigon um, and then was forced to flee by boat via, um, to, to Malaysia. Um, and then she um, became an immigrant in Canada. And it's about um, all of those periods in her life. And they, um, it goes back and forth. And then it's her returning to Vietnam with her husband um and children and yeah it's it's just a beautiful beautiful book hmm. okay brilliant are there books you're looking forward to that are coming out uh oh the english translation um to michelle ulbeck or how you pronounce it's annihilate yeah um 
he's always uh he said i think he said it's his last one but he's always mm -hmm. a bit of a trickster so you never <laughs> quite believe him um and he's always so controversial so i think i just like it because i'm i like being contrary <laughs> um so i'm looking forward to the english translation of that um and i haven't read um Latvona, um Atessa Moshpeg's um, new book yet. Um, again, people are um, talking about that one in a certain way, so I want to read it just to see what I think. Um, mm. And, yeah, there's a book on um, my shelf that I just, it's been there for ages, and it's um, I've written it down here because I'm really excited for it, but I've had it. I've literally owned it for a couple of years now, and it's um, called The Old Drift um, by Namwali Serpil. And it's uh, like this epic um, family saga. Um, and I just I have a feeling that I'm really going to love this book, but then I'm also quite nervous to get into it because what if it doesn't meet my expectations? But I don't know. Um, every time I go to pick it up, I'm like, oh, no, I'll, I'll wait a little bit more, I think. Yeah, I don't know, but I'm excited to get into it when I eventually do. Mm. One more that we might want to mention as well is the Angela Meyer book as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Moon Sugar. And that's out in October. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Adrian Howell. This week's episode is sponsored by DoorstepShit.com. Do you have an annoying neighbour or colleague who gives you the shits? Give it back to them with doorstepshit.com. Use promo code BTZ for a free flaming paper bag for your next order. Visit doorstepshit.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Adrian's Desert Island Books. So number one, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but Lolita, I think every time you come to that book, because um, I've read it a heap now, um, but there's something new every time. Um, so I would definitely want to take that with me to the desert island. Um, and similarly, he wrote a book called Ada or Ardor. Um, and I think that there's a lot to unpack in that book. And when I read it, I just rushed through it. I didn't give it the time that it deserved. So, and it's it's pretty lengthy and it's pretty, you really have to concentrate with it. So I think Desert Island would be the perfect time to get stuck into that. Um, I'll probably be feeling a bit melancholy on the island. So I've got The Lover by Margaret Giraffe um, to assist with that mood. Um, and then because I've mentioned I just love this book. It was a gateway book. Milan um, is The Unbearable Lightness of Being, um, or really anything written by him. Um, again, I think it's probably one of those books that you can just read over and over and there'll always be something, um, something else that you take away from it. Um, a bit of poetry. I've got Leonard Cohen's The Book of Longing. I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen. Um, and then I've got my, I've got three to go, uh, sorry, I've got three go-to women at the moment who, um, anything that they, um, release, I, uh, gobble up. Um, 
So I've got Nicole Krauss, Deborah Levy, and Siri Husbeth. Um, so I'll take um, any book of theirs, really, for this island. Um, what else have I got? Oh, I figure there might be some lonely nights on this <laughs> island. So I'll take uh, Catherine Millay's autobiography, The Sexual Life of Catherine M. And how many is that? Did I miss one? Oh, yeah, I've got, um, I'm bringing a bit of nonfiction. Um, and it's a book I read maybe a year ago. And it was just devastating and brutal and it's called Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight by Alexandra Fuller and it's her autobiography of growing up in um what was Rhodesia which is now Zimbabwe and yeah it's a pretty interesting novel um yeah I think that's 10 is that 10? I think so brilliant your desert island sounds all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> You should know that um, that Ada or Ada, um, yeah, or Ada or Ada, whatever um, it is. <laughs> so I actually named my my daughter, my nine year old Ada, after that book. So really, yes. Oh, so okay, it's a complicated book, right? That's a fantastic book. It is yeah. complicated, but it's it's yeah, it's my yeah. favorite of, of Nabokov's books. Yeah. No, I I feel like I just didn't do it justice, and I'm kicking myself because it's it's lengthy. Yeah, go um, back. Yeah. Before we wrap this up, do you want to tell us where we can go and find you online or where we can read the brilliant Hydra? Yeah. I'm on Instagram as feline felt tip. Don't ask. I don't know why I have that handle. <laughs> um, but yeah, feline felt tip. Or I'm on Twitter, um, Adrian, and then underscore, underscore Howell. And where you can get Hydra. Look, it's, it's in quite a few bookshops around the place. Readings is where I had my launch um, and it's definitely available there. And you can get through Transit Lounge, I assume, as well, right? Yes. I think mm. you can. Okay. Yeah. You can, yes, I think you can, yeah. Perfect. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking All with right. you. Thank you. Thanks once again to Adrienne Howell. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod. And you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.